Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9th through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Isn't it wonderful to see the kids up here? Have them leading us in worship. Unless I miss my guess, there's a family that came to worship here this morning who had a rough morning. Things didn't go so well at home. There was tension, stress, some terse words, and yet here you are. You came. There's another family that had a rough week. Things haven't gone so well lately. It seems like you're on each other's nerves. Things are stressed out. You're not quite sure where to turn. And yet, you're here. And so you come to church. And then a preacher has the audacity to get up and say about your family, about which at the moment you don't have the most positive feelings, to say about your family, God can use you. And you're thinking, <laughs> you need to come and live in our home for a while before you say that. Maybe you feel that kind of stress and tension. The Christian psychologist, therapist, speaker and writer Henry Cloud asks his audiences to do something. I, I thought about asking you to do that this morning, but I decided I love you too much. So he asks his audiences, he says, I'd like to ask anyone here this morning that is from a family that is not dysfunctional, to stand. So he says, would you please stand? And so there are some people who stand. And then Cloud says to the rest of them, now, I want you to look carefully at these people. Just, just get a good view of them. Look at them carefully. Because this is what denial looks like. <laughs> <laughs> So I decided not to do that to you because I suspect it would be rough. If I were to ask you that, if you're from a family that is not dysfunctional, has no dysfunctions, please stand. I don't think you would, even if you thought that. But the problem is most of us don't think that. Most of us think we've got our challenges, we've got our difficulties, our rough spots. What do you mean God can use us? You think, I know what, family, I know what my family's like, you say. I know families a bit, having lived in them, having studied them, and I know it can be a bit tough. Reminds me of the woman who wrote into Reader's Digest. She said, we have a women's club, and we had a speaker that came recently, a woman who came, an expert on some topic or theme, came and spoke to us, and in her presentation, she asked us, is there anyone here who would like to mother your husband? Well, a lady on the back row raised her hand. The speaker wasn't expecting that. She said, you would like to mother your husband? The lady said, oh, no, I thought you said smother. <laughs> <laughs> Family. 
Reminds me of the couple who was being audited by the IRS, and the IRS agent was going over the paperwork, and he said, this question right here, you've got to answer it. Head of household, who's head of household? They said, we've been fighting about that for 17 years. When we get to it, we'll let you know. <laughs> we don't know who it is. Family. I think of the cartoon. Did you see the cartoon with the wife, hand on hip, the other hand pointing at her husband, saying to him, a good husband is caring and strong and thoughtful. You have all those qualities except three. <laughs> Family. And it's not just husbands and wives. It's parents and kids. I read of a, a woman who was taking a survey trying to understand something about how we think about parenting and asked a woman, one of her subjects, she said, if you had it to do all over again, would you have kids again? And the lady immediately said, yes, but not the same ones. <laughs> family. What are you going to do with family? And it's not just parents with kids. It's kids with parents. Little Ann had misbehaved in some way. I don't know what she had done, but she had been banished to the card table in the corner for dinner. The rest of the family sat down for dinner. Dad offered the prayer. They proceeded to start. Little Ann dramatically bowed her head and prayed very loud and said, Dear Lord, thank you for preparing a table before me in the presence of my enemies. <laughs> Family. So you come to church and you're thinking, I don't know about my family. We're struggling. We're wrestling. We're, we're truly imperfect. And then a preacher stands up and says, God can use your family. And you think, I don't know about that. Well, just in case that's where you live today, I think you ought to take your Bibles, your devices, and turn to Genesis 29. Because in Genesis 29, we're going to observe a scene that unfolds as the double-crosser gets double-crossed. We're going to watch what happens in the life of Jacob. I want to remind you where we left Jacob. When we left Jacob last week, Jacob was on the run. In fact, when we left him, he was still shaking in awe. He was still thinking, in my flight from danger and family problems, in this entire wilderness, I chose the one spot to camp that is the very gateway of heaven. What are the chances? He's still shaking from that when we join him this week. So open your Bibles, open your devices, and stay with it. We're going to work our way through Jacob's story today, starting in Genesis 29 with verse 1. Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in the open country with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob comes to the well. Watering holes were very important places in that day and time. In fact, the truth is, in desert lands, water is liquid gold. It is worth more than just about anything else that you can think of. So it's probable that these shepherds had made an agreement. 
We're not going to open the well and take the water out until everybody's here. That way we can make certain that everybody gets some and nobody gets too much. So they're waiting because of that agreement. But it's also clear from the text that the stone was large. They need help moving it. Jacob shows up, and there they are waiting. Verse 4, Jacob asked the shepherds, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, Is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter Rachel with the sheep. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It isn't time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. Is it just me or does that seem brazen to you? Here's this guy that has just showed up. He's not a shepherd. He has nothing to do with their work, their endeavors. And yet he shows up and he tells them, what are you doing lying around? Give them their water and go back to the pasture. Does that seem brazen to you? What's likely happening here is that Jacob realizes what they've said. Here comes Rachel. He gets a glimpse of her. And he realizes this is going to be an emotional moment. I don't want leering, peering eyes watching. And so when he sees the beautiful Rachel come and he says to them, Move along, move along. Nothing here to see. Keep going. But they're not having any part of it. He can say what he wants to say, but this is what happens in verse 8. We can't, they replied, until all the flocks are gathered and the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well. Then we will water the sheep. While he was still talking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was their shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep. Now think of what happens right there. Here they've just said, we're not moving it. It's too big. We're waiting for the others. Jacob gets one glimpse of Rachel, and he struts over there, grabs a stone, and moves it himself. You can't move it? I'll move it. Look at my muscles, Rachel. <laughs> he is excited. He's thrilled. He has a surge of adrenaline that goes through him when he realizes who this is in front of him. He's about to meet somebody that's part of his family. He's come a long way. This is going to be an extremely emotional moment. In fact, notice when we read next, notice just how emotional it is. If you follow this family's story in the book of Genesis, you see there's a lot of kissing and weeping that goes on in this family's story. And furthermore, in this scene of the story, you'll see running here and running there, embracing, storytelling, more tears, more excitement. It's an emotional time. And it's not hard to understand just why Jacob is brimming with such emotion. Just think of what he's been through in probably the last month. He's colluded with his mother, deceived his father, left home because of guilt and because of the threats that are being breathed out against his life by his brother. 
He has traversed approximately 550 miles of rough desert terrain in the hopes that at the end of that journey, he'll find a familiar face. No wonder Jacob is deeply emotional. Notice how the narrator tells the story. Back to Genesis 29, starting with verse 11. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He had told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah. So she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. It's an interesting family, this, if you want to say it kindly. If you want to be less kind and more abrupt, you'd say, in our terminology, it's a dysfunctional family. And yet Jacob has left that behind. He has to flee from Esau's wrath, but he also has to get away from, well, the triangles and the conniving and the scheming and the backstabbing and all that goes on in his family. What in the world is God doing thinking about possibly using this family? And so Jacob puts distance between himself and the past. Maybe geographical distance will solve the problem. Some still try that. Picture a student, wants to be a dental student, prospective dental student. Sits in his home in Atlanta, Georgia, on the computer, looking for dental schools, and finds one in a place called Loma Linda, California. Reads about it. Gets excited, and then Googles, Google knows all, Googles, how far is Atlanta from Loma Linda? 2,100 miles? Giddy up. Jesus, please help me to get into Loma Linda. I can escape the family drama, the family challenges, the family difficulties. I'll put some distance between me and that, and then I'll be okay. Then I'll be ready for you to use me. Well, Jacob's about to make a discovery. Jacob's about to discover that Laban... Mother's brother is indeed his mother's brother. And you may move a long way. In fact, you may take the boy out of the family, but you can't take the family out of the boy. And he's going to discover that what was true back there is still true up here. The same challenges lie up ahead. So back to the passage, Genesis 29. Notice starting halfway through verse 14. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. 
Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. There's a theme there, isn't there? Older, younger. Are we back to that again? Now the text says Leah had weak eyes. It's a hard word to translate. Scholars aren't absolutely certain of the precise meaning of the word. And so if you have different translations that you lay out on the table in front of you, you'll see that some of them translate the word differently. There's a strong case to be made for the fact that it should be translated with the word lovely. Leah had lovely eyes. It can mean weak, as the TNIV points out. But in other places, that same word is translated with words like delicate and vulnerable, inviting sense. It's likely that the narrator is saying about these two sisters, now Leah, the thing you'd notice about her was her eyes, lovely eyes, but Rachel, stunning beauty. In fact, that's how the message renders it. Leah had nice eyes, but Rachel was a stunning beauty. Your heart goes out to Leah. Some other firstborns in this family as well. Leah must have gotten weary of hearing about it. Oh, your sister is beautiful. Wow, she's really stunning. The guys around town. Is your sister seeing anyone? This wasn't probably a cheerful relationship. And Jacob takes notice. He notices Rachel. So when his uncle Laban says to me, look, I I need to pay you something. You can't be doing all this work, all these chores, and get nothing in return. What do you want? Well, the romance and the chemistry have kind of gotten into Jacob's head. His view is a little bit distorted. He's not thinking quite clearly. He says, I'll work for you seven years for Rachel. That's true. In that day and time, a bride price was required. What Jacob here offers, though, is over twice the normal bride price. He's gotten a little tipsy with love. I'll give you seven years of work. To which Laban, I mean Laban's family, right, family takes care of each other, right? To which Laban obviously says, oh, no, 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 Jacob, no, no, no. You're letting the romance get in your eyes. No, 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 you don't need to do that. Forget that. I mean, let me cut this way down. I'm here to take care of you. We're family, right? Not on your life. As soon as Laban hears seven years, he says, deal. We've got us a deal. Absolutely. Seven years, and you get Rachel. And the text says, the seven years seemed like a few days because his love was so great. Love does funny things to time. Have you noticed that? A couple stands embracing at the security checkpoint at the airport. Parting is such sweet sorrow. I can't wait till I see you. It's going to be so long. How am I going to make it without you? They're going to be apart two weeks. And yet it seems like an eternity. Love does strange things to time. 
Another couple on the phone. I have got to go to bed. It's 2 a.m. I know, but we just started talking. They actually started at 6 a.m. last night, but it just seems like a few minutes. Love does strange things to time. And so Jacob says, it seems like just a few days, yes, but now is the time. The seven years are up. Unless I miss my guess, he had it out on his iPhone, and he knew it down to the hour. It's been seven years. And so he speaks to Laban. I want you to notice what he says when he comes to Laban. Verse 21, Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed. I want to make love to her. Well, I mean, let's just be direct here. <laughs> let's just cut straight to the chase. Now, if you're a young man thinking about talking to a father-in-law, I don't recommend this. <laughs> this is... This is very different from the conversation my much-loved future son-in-law and I had. Much different. But Jacob cuts straight to the chase and says, This is what I want. This is what you've promised. Now is the time. And Jacob's about to find out that geography doesn't change family dynamics. Just leaving the rest of the family at home and coming to church doesn't fix the problems. Just moving away doesn't solve the issues. Because notice what happens. Back now to verse 22. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant, parentheses, as her wedding gift. I know you're, you're, you're wondering, aren't you? You're thinking, wait a minute. A whole night? Hmm. How, how, how does he not know that this is Leah? Well... Little veil, little darkness, a lot of wine. Let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> so Laban double crosses the double crosser. I mean, I suppose you could say it in a variety of, of different ways. You could say, We get what's coming to us, we get what we are, things come around. You'll get yours. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that we could say that. But at the bottom of the list, at the end of the day, the reality is Jacob gets what he gave. He's double-crossed. Now he's being double-crossed. Welcome to the family. It's just the way this family does business. And it's about right there that I want to have a conversation with God. And I want to say to God, God... Help me. I want to be respectful. We all come from imperfect families. But seriously, this family? You're going to use this family to bless all the nations of the earth? Wow. Now, I've had the wonderful privilege of officiating at many weddings. I love weddings. I heard a, a, a wedding coordinators say years ago something that I've not forgotten and that I myself have often reminded couples. And that is this. Just plan on the fact 
that something's going to go wrong at your wedding. Something. Then when it happens, then when it goes wrong, you can just say, well, that was what went wrong. Now let's focus on the rest of the wedding. Something's going to go wrong. A groomsman forgets the right shoes. The couple left the marriage license in the other car. A bridesmaid forgot to bring something that she needs. For, something will go wrong. The Bible boy won't come down the aisle. Just plan on the fact that something's going to go wrong at a wedding. You know, like the wrong bride shows up. <laughs> because that's what Jacob encounters. And I want you to notice his response. We go back to Genesis 29, and I want to read the first part of verse 25. When morning came, there was Leah. Poor Leah. I feel bad for Leah. But I do love the way the, the old King James states it. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Without realizing it, the narrator, maybe Jacob, maybe those were the actual words that came out of his mouth, without realizing they have just made a statement that is a statement made by countless spouses through the millennia. The end of the first day, end of the first week, end of the first month, suddenly they look at each other and say, Who are you? You're not the person I married. You're not the person I did. What happened to you? How did we? I don't know what went wrong. In fact, one wisecracker said, when there's a wedding, there's actually not two, but six people that get married. And over the first few months to a year, four of them die and are buried. So the person said, six people get married. The first two to go are the woman you thought she was and the man she thought you were. Those die pretty quickly. Behold, it was Leah. The next two to go are the man you thought you were and the woman you thought you were as you find yourself doing things that you swore you would never do when you got married. Now those are gone. The only two left are the man you are and the woman you are, truly, really, honestly. And now you decide, are we going to have a marriage based on reality rather than just romance? And behold, in the morning... It was Leah. Now for Jacob, it's not so much those realities that he faces, but what Laban has done to him. This is family, Laban. How could you do this to me? So I want you to notice what happens as Jacob processes what has just occurred in his life. Back to verse 25. So Jacob said to Laban, Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? That's really rich for you to be saying, Jacob. Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Well, you could have told me that seven years ago. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return, by the way, for another seven years of work. 
And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Billah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. Now just think of what Laban is doing here. First of all, he's deceived his nephew. He's gotten seven years, much more than he ever should have gotten, for the bride price. And then he's deceived him, just so his family looks good. And then once the deception is discovered, he says, not, he doesn't say, okay, I'm sorry. Well, here you can have Rachel as well and everything's good. No, he said, no, 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 no. You can have Rachel, but you owe me another seven years. And then to top it all off, he gets two weddings for the price of one. At every turn, Laban is scheming, conniving, and lining his own pockets. Welcome to the family, Jacob. Glad you're here with us. And God is using these people? What kind of family is that? I mean, compared to that, our families look like leave it to beaver. How can you use these people, God. And then there's Jacob. Is it just me? Or is it the height of irony for Jacob to go to Laban, poke him in the chest and say, how could you deceive me? Jacob to do that. Kind of makes you want to ask Jacob, so Jacob, just curious, what do you think Esau said when he got up this morning? got up and remembered that he doesn't have the birthright or the blessing. What do you think he said? What do you think your dad said as he awakened this morning and thought back and said, I should have known something. It didn't sound like, it didn't smell like him. What do you think your dad said? What do you think your mother says? Robbed of her favored son. It's pretty amazing that you would dare to ask Laban, how could you deceive me? It's just all in the family, Jacob. All in the family. But my question remains. Certainly for those of us who say, we'd love for God to use our family in some important way, some meaningful way in the lives of others. But, man, we've got our challenges, our difficulties, our stresses, our conflicts. How could God use a family like ours? And then the question about Jacob's family. God, you're really going to bless all the nations of the earth through these people? The Old Testament scholar John Salehammer, writing about this episode in Jacob's life, says this. For the first time in the narratives about Jacob, he becomes the object rather than the source of deception. Laban turns the tables on him. The similarity between what Laban does to Jacob and what Jacob did to Isaac is patent. Jacob was able to exchange the younger for the older, whereas Laban reverses this trick and exchanges the older for the younger. Jacob gets what he deserves. Seen in this light, the seven extra years that Jacob serves Laban appear to be a repayment for his treatment of Esau. Something greater is at work behind these events. By calling such situations to the attention of the reader, the writer draws an important lesson from these narratives. 
Jacob's deceptive schemes for obtaining the blessing apparently do not meet with divine approval. Through Jacob's plans, God's will is accomplished, but the writer is intent on pointing out as well that the schemes and tricks are not of God's design. God is working despite, not because of, Jacob's tricks. Don't miss that last line. God is working despite, not because of, Jacob's tricks. You mean, God, that you can take us ordinary human beings, feeble, frail, faulty, failing families, and still use us despite ourselves? But somehow the grace and the power and the mercy of God overrules events and choices and relational dynamics toward the blessing of others. It calls to mind for me a few lines from Eugene Peterson in his book, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Listen to what Peterson writes. God, it turns out, does not require good people to do good work. As one medieval saying has it, God draws straight lines with a crooked stick. He can and does work with us. Whatever the moral and spiritual condition in which he finds us, God, we realize, does some of his best work using the most unlikely people. God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. What if, what if Loma Linda University Church, this church we love, to which we belong, what if this church is a forest of crooked sticks? Just a forest. We're all in that forest together. None of us is perfect. No family is exemplary. Every family has its flaws and its failures. And yet God takes that forest and through His power and His grace does amazing things in blessing others. Don't misunderstand. God wants to grow all of us toward greater maturity and greater health. Of that, let there be no doubt. But He'll use us right where we are. But I do wonder, how might this story have been different? There were healthier choices being made. I want to give you one example of that, just one. This, too, is from the pen of Eugene Peterson, though in a different book called Pastor. Peterson here in this piece is reflecting on that frightful night when he went to see his hopefully future father-in-law to ask for his blessing. Here are Peterson's words. That was the home I entered on a Thursday evening in February of 1958 to ask for permission and a blessing to marry Jan. I rang the doorbell. Jan's father opened the door, surprised to see me. Jan isn't here. She's at choir practice. 
Yes, I know, I know she's not here. Um, that's why I'm here. Well, come in and sit down. We sat side by side on the sofa. I didn't know how to do this. He made small talk. Then a silence. And then, tell me why you're here, Eugene. I, um, well, I wanted to, I, I mean, I, I, it's this way. I, he put his hand on my shoulder and said, Eugene, you don't have to go through this. Let's have a cup of coffee. He rescued me. An act of hospitality. I never did have to ask him. Over coffee, we were able to have an easy conversation in which he gave both permission and blessing. No interrogation. No conditions. Welcome to the family. I don't know the dynamics of your family. I don't know the struggles, the tears, the prayers. But I do know this. I do know that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. And I do know that He'd like to say to you and to your family, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you'll open the door, let me in. I'd love to have dinner together. And over dinner, I'd love to say to you, welcome to the family. Amen. Gracious God, our hearts swell with hope at the idea that you would actually use us. Feeble, Faulty, frail families to further your divine purpose in the world. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.